Curious followers, I'm Chris, and welcome to another Fury Within Twister. I rather liked my last episode where I called myself Twisted Chris. Suits me. Today is another short little episode where I'm going to cover a very broad, very deep, and often very controversial topic, but one that I've gotten a couple of email requests to cover, so I'm all in. I'm going to cover it with a bit of uh, dispassion for several reasons. The main reason, because everything is about what I think, is I have my own mixed feelings about this subject. The second is, it's not intended to be a political statement about this topic, just a factual one. I'm not even sure I can work in any appropriate humor, so we'll just stick with the facts as best I can and interpret them at a high level. Of note, I am not an attorney. This is intended to be a bit of a brain dump based on research. I spend a lot more time researching these topics than I do talking to you about them. But since these episodes are meant to be short, you know, I I do the best that I can from a high level. If I've left something out, please don't come at me. Just comprehend the episode for what it is and not what it isn't. Without further ado, today we're talking about the death penalty. Well, not exactly the death penalty, but some U.S. history relative to the punishment and its implementation and how the country has gone up and down with it. A relationship, if you will, between the country and the death penalty. Many of us are aware of Furman versus Georgia, where the death penalty was abolished by the Supreme Court, immediately eliminating the death penalty from the 40 states that had death penalty statutes. But what's the history there? The death penalty has been around in this country since its inception. All 13 of the original colonies had and used the death penalty. The first recorded use of the death penalty was in 1608 with the execution by firing squad of Captain George Kendall in the Jamestown colony of Virginia for being a spy for Spain. He was one of the original counselors for the newly established colony, but would be found out to be a double-crosser spying for Spain. And that would be the end of him. The death penalty is a unique punishment in the U.S. legal system in that most other non-capital cases, juries hear the cases and decide guilt or innocence, but the judge imposes the punishment. But in death penalty cases, it is the jury who is asked to pass punishment on the convicted. And prior to Furman versus Georgia, juries were given complete discretion as to who and whether the death penalty should be imposed or not, which has a lot of questions in and of itself from a fairness perspective. For a long time, it was assumed that the U.S. Constitution did not interface with the death penalty, but in reading the due process language that no one should be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process, that would seem to imply, you know, the life part, the Constitution does have something to say about it, at least as it pertains to due process. In a Supreme Court case in 1963, Rudolph v. Alabama, Justice Arthur Goldberg wrote a dissenting opinion on the court's decision for denial of certiorari. A denial for certiorari essentially means the court refuses to hear the case. In the Rudolph case, Frank Lee Rudolph, a black man, was convicted of the rape of a white woman and sentenced to death. And as I mentioned, the Supreme Court, consisting, by the way, of only white men at the time, denied cert by a vote of six to three. The three dissenters' opinion that the court should have granted cert or heard the case got the attention of the NAACP, because of course they did, because they knew the death penalty was really more of a race issue. This kicked off the Learning and Defense Fund of the NAACP to begin a constitutional challenge to the death penalty across the United States. And this is brilliant, really. They did this by distributing ready-to-file litigation papers to criminal defense attorneys across the entire country, which they called, quote, last aid kits. So basically... They put together litigation papers in like a prepackaged thing, sent it out to every defense attorney they could find in the country. This actually resulted in stays of execution 
by the hundreds where the death penalty was imminent. This campaign was very successful, resulting in a complete stoppage of executions from 1967 to 1972, the five years prior to the Furman case. While this was happening, the Supreme Court was actually granting cert on several constitutional questions um, that the NAACP and others brought before them. So they felt like they had some really good momentum going. But just when they thought things were going well, the Magatha versus California case came before the Supreme Court. In another six to three decision, the court decided pretty much the same thing as in Rudolph versus Alabama, in that it said it was impossible to determine if leaving the decision of life or death to the jury violated any part of the Constitution. Thus, many thought when Furman came to the highest court, it would end similarly. What they didn't count on was that two of those justices who were in the majority decision of the Magatha case had essentially changed their minds because they're human. Let's get into some of the details. The Furman case actually refers to three cases that were heard collectively before the Supreme Court, Furman versus Georgia, Jackson versus Georgia, and Branch versus Texas, beginning in January 1972. The 5-4 decision held the opinion that the death penalty constituted cruel and unusual punishment, thereby violating the Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The arguments before the court were basically that the death penalty itself, the way in which it was carried out per se, was cruel and unusual. And the other argument was that the way in which the process of getting to the death penalty was cruel and unusual because it was inconsistently applied to people, and circumstances. When the majority came down stating that the death penalty was unconstitutional, all nine justices wrote their own opinions, showing just how contentious this subject is. Normally, one justice would write for the majority and one for the dissenting. But in this case, which is extremely rare, by the way, each justice wrote for themselves. Justice Thurgood Marshall writes of the decision, quote, In striking down capital punishment, this court does not malign our system of government. On the contrary, in recognizing the humanity of our fellow human beings, we pay ourselves the highest tribute. Three of the justices felt the death penalty was cruel and unusual because of how it was implemented. For example, black men were sentenced to death 405 times in the years leading up to Furman, and white people only 50 times. Additionally, black men were often sentenced to death for the non-lethal rape of a white woman. No white men were ever sentenced to death for the non-lethal rape of a black woman or child, hence cruelly and unusually implemented across race, economic, or political status. Further, Justice Potter Stewart said, quote, I simply conclude that the 8th and 14th Amendments cannot tolerate the infliction of a sentence of death under legal systems that permit this unique penalty to be so wantonly and so freakishly imposed. In other words, he felt that the permissiveness and broadness of the ability to use the death penalty rendered it cruel and unusual as it was not and could not be imposed equally regardless of social, political, or economic status. What that meant was that the 600-odd people on death row had to be put back into general population and new sentences imposed. This also meant that the states were going to go back and work on legislation that could guide juries in how and when to leverage the death penalty in ways that would be constitutional. Within four years of Furman, 35 states and federal and the federal government had new death sentence guidelines back on the books. That was when Gregg versus Georgia, which is actually five cases heard collectively, was heard by the Supreme Court in 1976 to test the theory that the death penalty could be considered constitutional with jury guidance and standards for use. In a 7-2 to two decision, the court upheld that it was constitutional to impose the death penalty 
as long as the jury was given standards to guide them in their decision-making. But the standards were not defined, leaving states to create that kind of language and guidance for themselves, much of its subjective in nature, seemingly flying in the face of the earlier Furman decision. A year after the 1976 decision reinstituting the death penalty with standards for jury guidance, in 1977, Gary Gilmore would be executed for the killing of an elderly couple who refused to give him their car. He would be the first execution in a decade. It might lead you to think one way or another about the Furman case. It was a success or it was a failure, but that is sort of oversimplifying what is a more nuanced and complicated reality. At the time of Furman, 40 states had the death penalty laws on the books. Today, 50 plus years after Furman, 27 states have death penalty laws. Some states found that the nebulousness of these standards for death penalty guidance were too difficult to implement and understand or even to disseminate to a layperson like myself. So they just did away with the death penalty altogether. The question as to what types of offenses are punishable by death is largely put to rest with the case of Kennedy versus Louisiana, where the court stated that the death penalty could no longer be used for any crime against an individual that resulted in non-lethal harm or injury. Crimes against the state, however, such as treason or espionage, are still hanging chads, if you will. You remember hanging chads, right? If not, take three minutes out of your day and go look it up. You'll be glad you did, if for no other reason than a good eye roll and maybe even a chuckle. However, and to further muddy the waters, accomplices in crimes where death occurs, even if that accomplice was not the one who caused the death, can be handed the death penalty in some states. Famously, Texas has the, quote, accomplice law that states, quote, in the attempt to carry out a conspiracy to commit one felony, another felony is committed by one of the conspirators. All conspirators are guilty of the felony actually committed, though having no intent to commit it, if the offense was committed in furtherance of an of the unlawful purpose and was one that should have been anticipated as a result of the carrying out of the conspiracy. Which basically means if you're part of a crime, And another crime, even if you didn't want it to happen, it happens and you could reasonably know about it, that that, that it might happen, you're on the hook for that one too. One additional change to capital punishment came with the inclusion of victim impact statements. Prior to 1991, victim impact statements were left out of the punishment phase of a capital murder case. With the Payne versus Tennessee case, victims' families could now testify to the jury after a conviction about how the loss of their loved one impacted their lives. Additionally, the families of the convicted could also make impassioned pleas to spare their loved ones' lives, statements that most certainly impact a jury's ability to make rational decisions based on facts and not emotion. So who won the capital punishment race? Well, no one really. The Furman case ushered in a time of reflection relative to the death penalty, and it is one that we as a country still struggle with, down to a fundamental core of what we each believe spiritually, morally, politically, and metaphysically. And wherever you personally may land, the struggle is real, and as long as people kill people, that struggle will remain. Whew, that was a heavy topic in a very short period of time. I hope you enjoyed this ocean of the history of capital punishment in the size of a Dixie cup. I really enjoyed researching it. I actually spent quite a bit of time on it. It's hard to do a nutshell version of the U.S.'s relationship with capital punishment, but hopefully I've been able to give you some insight as to why the Furman et al. case was so important to the question of jurisprudence in the United States and why the question is so complex and difficult to answer. So thanks for listening, Furious Followers. I'll leave you to contemplate the echoes of legal precedent in your own head. 
As for me, the space between my ears is already wondering what topic I'll select next. If you have some thoughts, shoot me an email at cowardsfury at gmail.com. Hopefully something a little lighter because my shoulders hurt. See you next time and remember to share us with all your buddies.